Welcome back to the Declaration Podcast. My name is Ty DeClaire, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in today. What's up, Patreon? I'd like to thank Matt Nath in the squad. That's at Matt Nath on all your Instagrams. Hope you liked the podcast last week I did with Matt. Over in the Angels, we have Chris Pierce at Chris Pierce 103. One of the things that I've been uh, kind of focusing on a bit this week, uh, yeah, I guess last week, is getting out in nature and just not really going out there to work out or to have a plan, but just to simply be. Um, Sunday, I played flag football. There's a little forest behind there. I just took a little walk over there. It's There's something about just being around nature that can just really calm you down. Do it while you still can. Mason Tim at the Bearded Bear 95 and Boyan Ansonoff at Boyan V Ansonoff. Thank you so much, everybody. If you'd like to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash the declaration online. There's many benefits. So this week, checking in mentally, we, uh, we, me, I'm doing sober October. And, uh, so I'm officially eight days in and a couple of the things I've found is number one, I get really bored really easy. <laughs> um, it's it's not like I, I would not classify myself as a heavy user of anything um, in that sort of sense. But even just not having anything to turn to when, hey, there's nothing else to do today, it it makes you realize how much time you fill with other things. Like, let's say even food or, or things of that nature. And I've just been amazed by the amount of time I have on my hands if I look for it. So like yesterday I had, I'll get into my sleep schedule and all that in a little bit, but yesterday I had a whole day off and I decided I'm going to play Dragon Age origin stories or whatever. And I played that for like eight hours and it was, it was a time. But after that, I'm just, I'm sitting there. I'm kind of tired. My eyes hurt. I haven't really done anything today. I'm still in some sweatpants. I was just left feeling super unsatisfied. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, all I want to do is eat. I don't want to work out. I don't want to clean. I don't want to cook. I don't want to do anything that's kind of productive. And it just got me thinking a bit more about the idea of either wasting time or investing time. I, I love wasting time. I love mindless activities like, let's say, watching The Office or like doing something that I do all the time. Get home from work, throw on two or three episodes of The Office. I can't think of a nicer way to unwind. But the thing about that is there's no challenge in that. There's no excitement in that anymore. There's no engagement in that anymore. And the low feelings come with having low challenges, low engagement, low excitement. And it's just, it's a, another reminder of how I can depress myself with the changing of the seasons and everything else that's going on. I want to make sure that I'm doing the things in my own life that are going to leave me with the best chance of feeling my best. So that's one thing that's going on. Um, today, for example, Uh, I woke up, I was like, I'm not having another low day. So I got up, I made a shopping list, I went grocery shopping, I cooked a stew, I cooked uh, some chicken breasts up, all in our fancy little instant pot, which is a wonderful little device. 
And yeah, so just being productive, doing something, maybe not even doing something new, but just doing something that's going to make tomorrow easier or even just the rest of your day easier. It's worth it. I got a new job. I haven't started it yet. I start next week and I'm super excited to get started with that. Um, a little bittersweet leaving the last job. I didn't like the job pretty much at all, but I loved the people there. And I know I have a couple of you listening right now. I just want to thank you for all the time that I got to spend with you guys and uh, everything you taught me, all the laughs we had. It really meant a lot to me. You made the days bearable. And yeah, just I'm excited to get started my new job, excited to do something that I actually want to do. And yeah, my uh, I guess my focus for the rest of this week is just going to be sleeping well because I've my sleeping pattern just been all over the place since Friday. With me doing sober October, what a better why not just go to my friends' birthday parties? Why not go to parties where everyone is drinking and I'm the only one there just sipping my water. Well, actually, I'm not the only one. Caleb on who's on the show two episodes ago, he he actually is doing sober October as well, independent of me and we uh were H2 bros. That was fun. But uh yeah, I stayed up till like 2 a.m. on Friday, uh, like, uh, was it? No, Saturday I slept okay. And then Sunday I was up till like 4 a.m. because I played Dungeons and Dragons until like midnight, one o'clock, and then decided to watch the Chiefs game where they lost. Boo. But yeah, so get my sleep right, get my eating right, and just go outside and get some sunlight while I still can. Uh, I don't have. I had no idea what I'm in for for these Halifax winters. I know it's not as bad as Ottawa, and I know it's nowhere close to as good as Vancouver. So I just want to take advantage of decent weather while I can. That's about it for how my week has gone. So let's fast forward to the show this week. I have on Deb and Michael Jackson, who were my old professors at Earlham College. So that was about 2010 to 2012. And... Man, I really enjoyed catching up with them. We had an amazing conversation, as you're going to hear. This is getting up my notes from the podcast here. Uh, yeah, we talked about rewarding and challenging experiences that they had through their teaching careers and professional careers. Uh, what makes for a successful student? Uh, how to ask the right questions? How to listen? And the kind of yin and yang of being a deep thinker. And that becoming being an overthinker and how to find a bit of balance of that in your life. So I know everyone's going to enjoy this. I know I had a blast talking to them and catching up. They even brought up some of my old reports that like I handed in when I was a freshman and sophomore in college. What a flashback. Head on over to iTunes, rate and review the show or whatever you get the show, really. Just rate and review wherever you can. Uh, you can find this podcast everywhere, by the way. I get a lot of questions of, is this on Spotify? Is this on iTunes? Yes. It is everywhere. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can download this. Search The Declaration Podcast. And yeah, hope you have a great week. I know I will. And I will see you all back here next week. Without any further ado, please welcome Deb and Michael Jackson.
Okay, welcome back. And a big hello to Michael and Deb Jackson, my old college professors. How are you two doing today? Great. Very good. It's very good to be talking with you after all these eight years, I guess it is. I was going to say, I was trying to do the math before the show. It's been about eight years, yeah, because I moved back to Canada in 2012. So yeah, yeah, so seven anyway, yeah. Yeah, about that. Yeah, so it's been a while. Um, so would how you guys like to just... You, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was at Earlham uh, from 2010 to 2012, so two years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, my uh, freshman and sophomore year. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, so would you two just like to introduce yourselves and just let the people know who you are, and then we can kind of start from there. Okay, well, I'm Michael. And um, I'm a psychologist. Uh, I worked for a number of years in the field as a clinical psychologist. Then I became, uh, and Deb can explain how this came about, but she and I both ended up um, moving into teaching in the year 2000 at Earlham College. And uh, so I taught in the psychology department. I taught courses in clinical psychology and related to different aspects of counseling and, and psych. And um, Deb taught in the anthro department, and we both taught. Uh, together in the HDSR, which stands for Human Development and Social Relations Department. Which Ty is well, you, Ty, are well familiar with since you were a major in that department. And that is how we all met. So I'll pick up on my side of it. Uh, Michael already mentioned I'm I'm an anthropologist. And um, Michael and I met when he was all, he'd already gotten his PhD in psychology and was teaching at a hospital in the Detroit area. And um, working at a hospital, not teaching. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. (laughs) Well, there was probably a teaching. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But there was a teaching element to it. Anyway, um, so he was working as a therapist, and I was um, actually, I was just starting or, completing my undergraduate degree as a sort of a, a non-traditional student. So that's how we met. And um, then I finished my anthropology PhD. And then that's when I was looking for my first academic job. And Michael was looking to get out of the working in a hospital racket mm-hmm. because it had become maybe, I don't know. Actually, the, I think this is an interesting question for you, Ty, because um, here in the States, the you you guys have socialized medicine there in Canada and here in the states the um what would you call it the p- management what was that name um, HMOs well basically it's insurance driven yeah so the insurance driven healthcare system made it so difficult to do good healthcare for good adolescent uh, which is what Michael was working with adolescents in the hospital made it so difficult that he was really driven out of that field and then we both I was looking, going into teaching anyway, and then Michael decided he'd try his hand at it. At it, And we just, we found this crazy position at a little college, little Quaker college named Earlham in Indiana, which we had never heard of before. We'd never heard of the college. And this ad was looking for somebody with a PhD in either sociology or anthropology, that would be me, and who could teach courses in clinical psychology. And that would not be me, that would be Michael. So we applied, it was one job, we applied as a couple, we got it, obviously. 
and over the years, we each built on our respective, um, you know, our respective sides of it. And then we were able to join together in the human development and social relations program that drew on both anthropology and psychology and threw in some sociology. That may be the most Earlham thing there has ever been. (laughs) (laughs) I know it is so Earlham. So that sort of fits in with your uh, life, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one of the things that I loved about Earlham was just, I guess, the inclusivity that you get from it, where you know everyone has a place, everyone is a part of the family, and you feel welcome there, no matter what your background is. And that was one of the first things that struck me when I had both of you as professors was just the connection you made with the students. Um, like, obviously, it helps having the smallest class sizes and all that, but it's. Yeah, you just you both just seem so welcoming. Was that something that just comes naturally to you, or was that a like what? what where did that come from? Your welcoming that, nature. That, that was definitely something that appealed to us too when we first found out about the job, <clears throat> and when we uh, interviewed at Earlham, we got definitely got that impression. Also, you didn't really say much about the HDSR program. Well, why don't mentioned. you say something yeah. about it then? HDSR, um, <laughs> the Human Development and Social Relations Program, is kind of a combination of psychology, sociology, and other things, anthropology, of course. Um, and it's aimed at sort of understanding various kinds of social problems and issues um, from a lot of different perspectives. Um, and also um, being sort of active and engaged in the world. And that was another thing that appealed to both of us, too. So not just, you know, learning for learning's sake, but also trying to make the world a better place. And I would add in one other element that was has been very important to HDSR is the reflective side of it, that uh, you reflect personally on your own. And I'm thinking about you, Ty, and what you're doing now, and even this podcast series, that um, there's such a strong reflective element to sort of where is one in life and what has been important, what is important now, sort of lessons of life. And I see that, I mean, that was definitely built in to the structure of HDSR, which I think is pretty unusual, really. I mean, all the things that Michael mentioned, that that combination, and then you add in the reflection and you've really got something. Yeah. And um, I, the more I grow, the more I see the impact that HDMR or HDSR and Earlham had on me, actually. Um, like I remember mm-hmm. my first course with Nelson uh, mm-hmm. and like we started studying like Japanese culture and mm-hmm. just how does this all connect? And then just like I always tell people the thing that I got most out of college and university is learning mm-hmm. how much I don't know and how that's just kind of set me up on a path of trying to learn as much as I can and admit when I don't know something and not try and like make it seem like I know everything that that kind of uh, attitude. Yeah, and, I think that's really important. It's important for uh, yeah. instructors to have that attitude too. I just want to mention if any of your listeners are interested, Earlham College, it's actually spelled E-A-R-L-H-A-M. Yeah. In case the ham. Yeah. <laughs> Earl Ham. Right, there <laughs> you it's go. pronounced Earlham for some reason. Well, the Brits, it's the British yeah. influence. Mm. Yeah, but those those are values that are uh, held high. So there's a little plug. Yeah, yeah. there we go. <laughs> I hope that won't violate any um, laws of unfair advertising or anything. <laughs> I think we'll be okay. <laughs> All right, good. Um, so yeah, so how long did both of you end up teaching at Earlham in total? 
I was there for 16 years and Deb was there for 17 because I retired one year before she did. Right. And I'm sure in that time there was some ups and some downs throughout Mm -hmm. the process. Would you like to talk about any of those? Well, one uh, thing that I found really challenging was moving from doing clinical work, doing therapy and counseling with people into doing uh, teaching. Mm. Uh, For one thing, I had to, even though in some ways there's, there are a lot of similarities, but one thing I had to do is really brush up on all the latest things that were going on in my field, learning all about that. But also more importantly is sort of how to think about um, sort of helping students to become educated uh, particularly in the parts of psychology that I'm involved in, doing counseling and psychotherapy. And uh, the main class that I taught that had to do with that was one that you took called Counseling and Psychotherapy. Yeah. And um, as you know, that class ended up, well, the class was structured so that there was um, a seminar part where pe- people learn the academic part of counseling and psychotherapy. They learned the various theorists and things like that. And we also had a lab in which people actually got to counsel each other. Mm -hmm. And so at first I found it tricky to figure out how to juggle those things because they're really different from each other. Um, But I, within a couple of years, I really got a good feel for it. And it was actually probably one of the most satisfying things that I did the whole time I was at or on. Mm-hmm. You want to comment on your? Well, and I guess I would, um, you know, you pose that as were there some difficult times or the ups and downs. Yeah. And um, I would like to say a little bit about um, our last few years there. Uh, we were talking a little bit uh, earlier, uh, you with us, about the fact that we um you know, we had retired, we, we chose a certain time to retire that was a bit earlier than we otherwise would have. Right. And there was some, some uh, there was some context to that. But what I want to add here is that what made that decision easier than it might otherwise have been is the fact that, again, I, this is a U.S. thing. And I'd be interested in any thoughts you have about any counterparts in Canada, but I have not gotten any vibe uh, that this same kind of thing is happening in Canada. And that is that there's so much pressure on particularly small liberal arts colleges with what we might call the forces of neoliberalism Mm. at work in the educational system here in the States, where there has come to be so much pressure on getting your, you know, the bang for the buck, getting your um, you know, your money's worth out of your education, having it be completely practical, like preparing for a job and not any of this fuzzy wuzzy kind of yeah, stuff yeah. that we all love so right. much. <laughs> so um, so those pressures, obviously, Earlham College is because of all those um, traits of it that we've all three have been talking about and agreeing that is what we really appreciate about Earlham College mm-hmm. and other small liberal arts colleges like it is um, the fact that pressures to sort of become like, almost like a vocational school or something, um, which there's nothing wrong with those other types of schools that prepare people for jobs, but it's a completely different paradigm. And it was very challenging. And I think Earlham is still facing some challenges along those lines. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I don't know. Does that sound like anything that's happening in Canada at all? 
Yeah, I think that's a bit of a it's a bit of a worldwide thing that's going on, at least like in the current political climate. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just like. I guess also with the fact that with, with rising university costs and college costs and all that, uh-huh. it's, you know, again, wanting to get the most bang for your buck. But like, I'm a firm believer in like the, in one thing, in all things kind of idea where there's value in whatever we talk about, even if it's, as you say, that fluffy, wuffy stuff. Like those are the things that help me to really understand the concepts that you guys are trying to teach the most was when we just dove into like for example, Deb, your your field work when you mm-hmm. shared that in the I'm forgetting the name of the second year class that you yeah. taught. Self society and social thought. That's it. Yeah. And the amount that I learned from your experience helped mm-hmm. me to understand the material you were teaching so much more, rather than you just going through and teaching us what's gonna be on an exam. And like I, I think that's yeah, like I think you'd be doing a disservice by trying to I don't know. Yeah. Like you said, make it into a vocational training school. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that feedback. And um, yeah, that was, it was very important to me to be able to share that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are, you know, not all contexts would allow for me to be able to share what I was doing. And um, you all were a very receptive audience. And I also appreciated the fact that you now, Ty, do you remember, I'm sure you do remember your nickname in that class. You remember that? Canada. Yes. yes. Right. And I just got a big kick out of that because since I was doing work in Canada, spending time in oh. Canada and getting such an awareness of, I basically already knew this, but it wasn't until I really started spending time in Canada around, um, 2006, seven, um, shortly before I had you in class doing that research and all, um, I just gained such a heightened awareness of how really outrageously clueless Americans are about Canada. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of like having you in class um, and having you go by that nickname of, Can- you know, like a proud yeah, Canadian, yeah. Can- yeah. Canada pride or something like that. Right. <laughs> well, my, one of my favorite stories from Earlham is that I had half the school convinced I had a pet sea lion and that I lived in an igloo. <laughs> well, Ty, I've got something to add to that because yes. I was looking through, uh, you know, thinking about talking with you here today. Yeah. And I was looking through, I do have my old uh, papers from that class because I did it, as you may recall, I did it electronically. I graded electronically. Right. And by the way, I'll just add a little side note that I was just impressed all over again. You're a very easygoing, um, down-to-earth kind of guy, which we all appreciate and love. But also, in addition to that, you I was just looking back over your exams and your papers, and you were so sharp with the really some very sophisticated theoretical kinds of issues and, you know, gr- good writing. And just, I was very impressed. But here's here's what I wanted to say. Thank you for the for the tire pumping there. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Good. But here's, here's what I found really funny yeah. as I was looking over old papers. One of them was there was an assignment that had to do with sort of... Um, well, preparing for the HDSR field study, which is, um, I'll say to people who don't know, uh, and of course you didn't get to that stage because you did need to transfer out after um, after your second year. But um, for those who went on in the major, they would do a sort of an internship or a field 
um, ethnography type of um, study of an organization and then analyze it. So part of that class that you were in, a theory class, but preparing for students to go into the field, um, one of the assignments was to sort of fill, fill out a sort of a pretend application form or um, a sort of a plan for your field study. And if you, yeah. had one, if you had a real one in mind, you could do it. And if not, you could make one up. So at the top is your typical um, information, you know, name, phone number, address. And for address, you put, we don't have addresses in Canada. Only ice rinks named after our families. <laughs> and that's how I laughed when I saw that. And I thought, and you know, I get that because because that's what I'm getting at. Like you could like you have to say stuff like that to Americans because that's, you know, that's what people think. Oh, I was funny back in the day. You, wow. well, you are. <laughs> but oh yeah, that just cracked me up. And that that's just one example of how you, as under your pseudonym of Canada in that classroom, and that made for lots of lively discussion. And the fact that it did tie in with the fact that I was doing research in Canada and then I could bring that into it and it all it was very uh lively. Absolutely. Now, Deb, I would like to kind of dive a little more into your field research because that was one of the things that I think I connected most with when I went to Earlham, not only because it was in Canada, but just from what it taught me. And one of the main things that I wanted to kind of get at, um, which Michael, you might have a comment on as well, is what it really just presented to me was that the difference and the value in both qualitative and quantitative research, um, especially with like, like you're saying, almost uh, the world becoming more numbers based is the need for qualitative um, soft type research. Mm -hmm. And like that was one of the main, I think if I remember correctly, um, your research Deb was qualitative based. Uh -huh. And if it was quantitative based, you wouldn't have gotten what you got out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And it really goes to my um, disciplinary orientation in cultural anthropology, the primary mode of research is eth ethnography, going and really living in a community and talking with people and hanging out with people and, you know, doing also incorporating some um, more formal interviews, but an anthropologist is more likely than maybe a more structured sociologist the anthropologist is more likely to have it be a free-flowing, more or less of a free-flowing conversation, even if it's um, being taped and, and is more official. And I just, to me, well, when I first met Michael, um, and he was talking about qualitative and quantitative, I was well into my degree in anthropology, I was well informed as a as an anthropology student, and I didn't know what he was talking about. And I realized that the reason is that so-called qualitative is so much the air we breathe in anthropology, mm -hmm. in cultural anthropology. We don't even need a name for it. It's just what we do. And I agree with you, Ty. I mean, I'm pleased to hear that that um, that richness came through to you as a student mm -hmm. in the class, hearing me talk about it, because that's why I continue to be so, um, I guess you could say almost evangelical about the value of a qualitative, um, 
uh, ethnographic research, living with people, talking with people, because you do you get such a sense of what their lives are like in a way that there is no substitute for. And then I would add the quantitative comes into it in that I really appreciate other people's quantitative studies. And you may recall um, my research there with the Amjanang First Nation in Canada's Chemical Valley in Sarnia. Um, the research had to do, I think the primary project that I probably talked about at that time in the class was um, having to do with the experience of the First Nations people uh, having to do with the tremendous pollution that surrounded them from the petrochemical industry located there in Sarnia and surrounding the First Nation, as is so often the case, uh, that happens in the States here and it happens around the world, that heavily polluting industry locates near a disadvantaged or marginalized communities, often indigenous communities. So they were really experiencing and still are um, considerable difficulties and hardships and health problems uh, due to the pollution. And one of the um, studies that had brought that those issues to the forefront and received international attention at the time that the study came out, I think it was 2006, was a birth ratio, a study of how the Amjanang First Nation had a skewed birth ratio where normally um, boys and girls are born in any population are born more or less the same, maybe 5149 in favor of male babies or some, something like that, but pretty much 50-50. And at Amjanang, it was um, two-thirds girls to one-third boys over a period of time, over a 10-year period. And that is an alarmingly skewed birth ratio that shows something wrong. And it also correlated with certain pollutants where studies in other parts of the world had shown that certain um, pollutants from petrochemical uh, production can have this effect, this birth ratio effect. So I mentioned that because, first of all, I think it's a really important issue, but also you know, that's a scientific quantitative study that is tremendously important. That is what really brought me to that area that made me want to know, okay, what's it like? What does it feel like? What are people's lives like? Yeah. So that added a whole other dimension that couldn't be captured in the scientific quantitative birth ratio study. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that also has ties to what's happening in Canada right now with the pipeline that they're trying to run through First Nations grounds, basically. Uh -huh. And the conversation of, you know, what is an oil spill going to do if it ever does happen or when it does happen uh -huh. to these lands and yeah. the people who live there. And yeah, so it's, it's a very relevant conversation that uh -huh. we have to not only look at the numbers, but at the people. Absolutely. And Michael, yeah. did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I was going to say a couple things. Um, I think that was a good example because that was a purely quantitative study. The birth that, age, yeah. yeah. really alerted you to that issue. Mm -hmm. But then you proceeded to do qualitative research, observing, interviewing, and talking to people about it and learning a lot of detail about how that happens and mm -hmm. what their various details of that are. Um, the other thing I was going to say, just a couple of things about this qualitative and quantitative thing. Anthropology is very 
qualitative. Uh And when you and I met, psychology, on the other hand, is very quantitative. And um, it was only about maybe in the last 10 years or so that there's been more and more people doing qualitative things in psychology, that is to say qualitative research in psychology, which involves things like interviewing people, uh, going to certain kinds of communities, hanging out and observing and um, you know, learning how to observe and, and uh, understand some of the things that are going on there. And which actually reminds me, Ty, of another uh, reminiscence about your time at Earlham. And uh, you, you took my class in qualitative research methods. And one of the things that really jumped out in my mind as soon as you know, I started thinking about us talking, I was remembering what you did. One of the things you did in that class, I don't know if you even remember this, but there was an assignment where the students were supposed to go out and observe a particular social setting. Do you remember that? It's, it's, it has faint reminiscence in my mind. Well, I, can, I remember it well because what you did was really quite good. You, um, you, you used as the setting you were observing a store that was releasing a video game. And all these people right. were lined up to buy the video game. And you observed that, took notes, because you were sitting there for hours, I assume, waiting for them to yeah. open. And, and I wasn't even playing the video game. Yeah. <laughs> I was there with my roommate at the time, actually. And yeah, I remember that well now. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> well, it was, you did a really excellent job because you observed all kinds of little interesting social dynamics about what, were going, what was going on, how the different people who had um, different levels of status within the gaming community, how they interacted with each other and the people who had more money, more affluence, had a certain orientation of the games, and they they had some ways of playing, and other people who were not in that position, there was some tension between them. You had a lot of really good observations, and I think it really um, brought that whole world to life. And I think that's a good example of what good qualitative research does. Mm-hmm. The other thing, uh, you know, that I was mentioning, you took my class in counseling and psychotherapy, mm-hmm. and that's actually a very qualitative um, uh, kind of thing to do in psychology is to do counseling, particularly the way we studied and studied it in that class, uh, which has a lot to do with learning how to talk to people, how to listen. And um, so we, we worked on that. You learned about that in the lab. And I've, I've heard you applying those skills in your interviews on this podcast. Yeah, one of the most interesting things when I reflect on it is because I did take a year-long diploma program for counseling after I had graduated university. Mm -hmm. And what you were able to teach in that class in one semester was essentially the equivalent that I got out of an entire year diploma program. Mm -hmm. So it it was the, the depth and just connection you're able to make with us. Like, what was it? A month in, we were already doing mock sessions with another uh-huh. student yeah and then just building on those skills and uh-huh. it was like i think one of the probably the, the best things with that was being able to kind of like in a football term take the mental reps by hearing everyone else's experience that goes through it as well mm-hmm. yeah. and just um yeah learning as we go from everyone in the class not just from your own experience yeah yeah, yeah. well that's really that's good to hear i'm glad that it was that helpful yeah um and I guess this would be a good time as any to ask this question because we were talking about, you know, um, my time back in there. Like, what would you two say makes a successful student? Like, what, what would you look for in a student who would be, I guess, yeah, successful? I think first and foremost, somebody who wants to learn. Mm-hmm. 
there are always students who are just there because you know they feel like they have to be there. Maybe their parents want them to go to school. So that might not really be the best time for them to really be in college. It might be better to take a couple of years off and decide what they really want to do. Um, but you get students who are just really passionate and eager and you know excited about learning. To me, that is by far the most important thing. And I would add, I agree with that. And I would add um, being having a willingness to listen to others who may have different opinions, that can be tricky, but it's, an, it's, I think it's tricky for all of us. I'll say this about myself, you know, especially in these heated uh, times of, uh, you know, political division and all of that. Um, it can be difficult, but it's something that I work on in myself. And I, I do think that that's a tremendously important skill for students to develop or to, as you put your question to, to make for like a really good student or a really um, successful student is someone who can, um, in classroom discussion, which I see as such an important part of learning for students and faculty alike, to be able to navigate those discussions in such a way that, you know, one isn't dominating or just sitting in the corner and not saying anything or getting angry if it's a controversial, you know, name calling. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which discussion can and does go wrong. but um, having skills or learning skills to be able to navigate that successfully, I think is really important. And I do, I, I have to say this again, Ty, because I, I do, I do see you. I mean, I just remember you as, you know, aside from the, from the written work, which uh, as I've said, was very excellent as well as at times quite funny, but, um, but I just, I remember you as just such a, um, such a congenial, member of the classroom community. So, um, yeah, I, it seemed to work. I, I would think that you would have felt successful in this class, in that class, because you certainly looked successful to me the way you interacted and performed in your work. Right. Oh, yeah. I would definitely say that I was on the more shy side in my life at that point, at least. Like, I still have tendencies of being shy, but Earlham will make you feel welcome, whether you like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> and in in the class sizes that small too, it, it's easier to be yourself, to open up to that sort of a thing. But I love what you said there of essentially not being afraid to be wrong and mm. just approaching life that way. Like, don't be afraid to throw your hat into a discussion because you're afraid of what might come back, or. Mm -hmm like holding back your opinion for fear of being like publicly shamed or whatever, whatever the consequence would be of that. Um, and yeah, like we were talking about, like in today's society, that's a problem where it's more like people are just yelling at each other than actually listening. Yeah. And yeah. I don't you know, know some people, I, I think I like the way you put that about not being afraid to throw your head into the ring. And mm -hmm. I would turn that around and say, completely agree with you. And at the same time, say some people are all too um, quick to throw their head in the ring and dominate everybody else. Yes, <laughs> so, absolutely. you know, that's a two, two sides of that coin. Absolutely. Actually, last night I was at a friend's party um, and I'm doing a sober October right now. So I was mm -hmm. just having some water while everyone else was drinking and having a good time. And I kind of used that time to do some people watching and just because I'm a I'm a listener rather than a talker usually. And it was just interesting to see the dynamics between people 
over talking or not talking at all or mm-hmm. looking at me and seeing why isn't he talking that much mm-hmm. and it, it's just yeah it's it, it all fits together somehow <laughs> yeah and guess what between that anecdote and what michael was saying a little earlier about your project um with the waiting in line to the video place or whatever i say that's ethnography, Ty. You were doing a little ethnographic study there at the party, right? I, I was, yeah. <laughs> this is an observation with the emphasis in, in that case on the observation. But uh, you're a natural, oh, I think. I appreciate that. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about maybe more the difficult times you've had through your um, professional and personal careers. What have been some of the most rewarding Well, um, my my uh, professional career is divided up into two roughly equal parts. One was doing clinical work, counseling and psychotherapy, and the other was doing teaching. And I would say they've both been really rewarding. Um, therapy and counseling can be really rewarding, particularly when you have one, a person who's really motivated to work and you can see them changing. You can see some of the things that they're doing. Uh, you can help with that. Um, and t- but teaching is also really rewarding. Um, I found it very challenging to try to explain some of the things that I had learned myself in the field of psychology and finding ways of communicating that to students and also finding out really um, being open to listening what students really want to learn, what they already know, what where they're coming from and what they want to learn. And um, one of the things that I found that I thought was really interesting is after I had been teaching for a couple of years is I realized that teaching and doing therapy are actually really similar to each other in a lot of ways. Um, there's a lot uh, that has to do with knowing how to, how to listen to people, figure out where they're really at, how to ask the right questions at the right time to sort of help them clarify what it is that they're figuring out about themselves, their lives, whatever it is they want to know. So I was really more and more struck, actually, as I taught how similar those two, um, those two things are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is, um, I'll start out by saying that I'm basically an introvert, which some people don't uh, are surprised to hear because I'm very social. You know, I enjoy social interactions, and but. Um, as I'm sure you well know, Ty, um, an introvert isn't an antisocial person, but rather somebody who gets um, energy from being alone and then can expend it socially. Yeah. So um, so I've always been that way. And I've always been, um, I guess I would say, sort of a deep, I don't want to say deep thinker. That makes it sound like I'm bragging, but sort of. Well, you are a deep thinker. Well, all right. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take that. And, and sort of thinking about what, thinking about the meaning of things so that, you know, in, in high school, I, in like poetry class and the deep layers of meaning in the poem and things like that, I've always been really intrigued by that sort of thing. And then I sort of got, um, you know, I wasn't able to go to college at the normal time um, for various reasons that I won't get into here, but that's what I became a non-traditional student going uh, back to school later in life. Uh, in my late 20s, I, I um, started my college career. And um, it was so rewarding when I discovered 
well, let me let me step back a minute. So I was always interested in these sort of deep meaning things that I associated with um, poetry analysis or mythology or things like that. On the other hand, I was really interested in humans, like people in real life interaction. So when I discovered anthropology, I was so thrilled to realize that anthropology is a field, and I guess in its way, psychology is a field like this too, for those who want to pursue it that way. But for me, it was anthropology that I hadn't even known existed before, where I could learn deeply about people, the kinds of things we've been talking about, the kinds of things you can learn in field work and qualitative research, and what things mean to them and what their lives mean, um, all in one field. Then, um, I loved teaching about that, and I so appreciate your perspective as a former student saying when I brought my my research and my own sort of thinking on things into the classroom, that that was meaningful and helpful. And the only thing that was a little bit frustrating was that um, I teaching is very um, high maintenance or um, very time consuming, I guess, at least in the way that Mike and I shared this quality. We both, we prepare really carefully. We go really deeply into it. We spend time grading papers. We give feedback. And maybe not everybody approaches it that way, but for Michael and me, it's been that way. So here's where I'm going with all of this. Um, One of the most rewarding things for me, aside from the fact that I love the teaching and all, and I discovered anthropology, but um, when I have been able over the years to, this this is sort of a two-pronged thing and somehow they fit together. One prong (laughs) is to connect with alums who have gone into fields that are similar to, you know, the kinds of things I'm interested in. Of course, this conversation right now is an example of that. But many times over the years, I've uh, kept up with alums. We get together from time to time. And it's just so gratifying and satisfying for me to see sort of the next generation coming along and pursuing their own sort of meaningful careers in that way, uh, sort of as, as I was so um, really privileged to be able to do. And it's so gratifying for me to see others now coming along. And then the other prong that is kind of separate, but um, is that without the, um, I guess you could say the workload of teaching, I have been able to delve more deeply into research than I ever was able to do while I was teaching. While I was teaching, the teaching took priority as well it should for all the right reasons, but it didn't allow that much time for uh, teaching, for for research. And now I am just, you know, Michael said earlier some of the things that he's been doing um, since we've retired from our teaching positions. And for me, it's been, I'm just continuing with that same kind of research with the environmental justice issues and in Canada, by the way, um, as well as the U.S. along the border there, along the St. Clair Channel, where the Michigan thumb, you know, comes over by southeastern Ontario and also some uh, some 
short research junkets up to the Tarzans area. And it's just, it's so deeply gratifying for me to return to being able to take a topic and pursue it as deeply as I possibly can without the kinds of external constraints that I had felt prior to that. So it's almost like I'm back. This is a little bit weird to say, but at this later stage of life, I'm almost back to the joy of learning that I experienced in high school when I was delving into the depths of a poetry meaning or something. (laughs) I'd like to think that's kind of the goal is to reignite that passion or to find that passion and just to find a way to live with that with as little constraints as possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy to hear that. Live in now, the had, Yes. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I had a question for both of you just kind of based on what you said there. So I'll start with Michael. You mentioned like the idea of communication with the, like how to ask the right questions and how to listen. And those can be kind of big terms. Was Did you have any Maybe not suggestions, but or even just lessons on how to listen or how to ask the right questions. Well, I'll respond by saying what some of the things were that we learned in the counseling lab the first few weeks. Uh, and you may remember this. One of the first things I did with the class is I told them what not to do. And I yes. gave a long list of things, which included things like, um, you know, when you're in the counseling role, uh, Number one, don't criticize. Uh, Number two, don't give advice. Mm -hmm. Number three, and this one was tricky for some people, but don't reassure. Um, And then several things like that. And mostly what that's aimed at is just getting people to kind of, shall we say, shut up and really (laughs) listen to what the other person is saying. Yeah. And then, you know, I encouraged people as, as the semester went on, I encouraged people to learn how to listen for feelings when people were expressing how they actually felt about something. Sometimes how they really felt wasn't actually being represented in their words, what they were saying, but you could see a lot of evidence sort of non-verbally what they were feeling. So to listen for feelings, to look for feelings, um, to um, imagine how they feel, to develop a sense of empathy for that, and then to let them, you know, give them some signals that you understand. I think those are all some of the things that you have to sort of try to develop to be a good listener. Absolutely. Yeah, it can, I guess, maybe not just today's society, but from what I've learned in my own life is it can be hard to get out of the way and let the process take its shape. And the idea of always having an answer or a suggestion or advice or getting that out of the way and just being there physically and emotionally for someone. Yeah, one of the things things that I tell students sometimes is one of the most important things and also sometimes one of the hardest things to learn um, when you're learning how to do good counseling is to um, um, to not interrupt. Yeah. Not only just jump in and say something, but to not sort of go off in a different direction. If, if the person is telling you something important, you know, just hang on, put a cork in it. Yeah, listen to what they're really saying and follow that. And uh, those are the yeah. kinds of things that you need to do. Yeah. Like not needing to throw the life preserver in right away and yeah, just yeah. learning the value of silence as well. Yeah, that was another one. It's okay to be silent sometimes. Absolutely. 
and Deb. Yeah. You mentioned that you were a deep thinker. Uh, well, at least <laughs> you maybe uh, tongue in cheek said that about yourself. Um, and I would kind of classify myself in that same way where I tend to just sit there and think about a lot mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. But with that comes the tendency also to overthink about maybe even small things. Could you talk a little bit about maybe if that's been your experience? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I guess I probably need to give it, shall I say, more deep thought in order to uh, in order to to really give you a full um, true answer. But sure, um, sure. but just sort of off the top of my head, my tendency is. Um, I, I, I feel like I, my deep thinking is in a particular realm of sort of, um, well, okay, well, you've really, you have got me thinking here. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to say that I separated out, like when I go into my deep thinking mode, it's it's in the intellectual realm, it's in the yeah. theoretical realm, and I don't do that in regular life. But you know what? I think you just maybe gave me an insight about myself because I, I do, I do think deeply about um I do analyze, you know, interactions, just, um, you know, what happened with a particular, um, you know, social situation or something like that. And, um, and I do, I do think about that a lot. And it probably does lead to overthinking in a way that can get me all, you know, worked up over something that I shouldn't be. I think we both have that trait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Michael and I kind of, kind of share that. That's fair. I, I know, at least I know in my own life, um, I used to overthink about a lot of things and really, really let that affect me in a negative way. Mm-hmm. But the more that I've grown into, I guess, understanding my own identity and just learn about myself through the process and get to a point of more self acceptance than mm-hmm. self analyzation, if that kind of makes sense is it's gone from overthinking to a point of negativity to overthinking to a point of maybe just like planning or more self-confidence more congruency between who what i'm thinking about and who i'm becoming if if that makes any sense that makes a lot of sense and that actually helps me uh just this thought that that you have triggered that um, you're helping me clarify it. And that is, I think you're probably aware of the Myers-Briggs. I mentioned yes. earlier being an introvert. And of course, yeah. that comes from that. So I discovered the Myers-Briggs. Actually, uh, it was Michael's sister that tipped me off to that, what, 40 years ago or 30 years ago, some crazy long time ago. And it was such a revelation to me. And I, it was so illuminating for me to realize my temperament and my personality type it just illuminated so much about me where certain things i felt like kind of like a freak or something in in certain in certain ways in certain contexts um i by the way i'm an i n f j so um i'm trying to remember what i am that sounds vaguely familiar I, <laughs> yeah 
The I, right. Yeah, definitely oh, the oh, I. Oh, you're trying to remember what you are. Yeah, what I yeah, am. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And for me, um, that was just such a revelation. And I've continued. It's not just like I, you know, read a book, realized what my personality type is, was illuminated, and then put it aside. It's like this is a constant um, force in my life that, because I do think about interactions and things like that, and I bring that. Uh, Myers-Briggs personality type insight into when I'm sort of pondering, oh, well, that was an awkward interaction or that person seemed a little bit, you know, off base or something. And then I think about it in terms of Myers-Briggs and I think about how people can just misconnect and misunderstand each other when, because we can't help but assume that others share our whatever our um, propensities are, whatever our personality types uh, sort of gear us towards, it's hard not to sort of generalize that and think that's how people are. And I think that's been very helpful to me in the way that you just described yourself and how you've grown. I think that I think I would say the same thing about myself, but I would really put that Myers-Briggs personality type um issue right at the core of it. And then I would just add a layer that as an anthropologist, of course, what that's all about is understanding cultural differences and social differences on a sort of a wider scale. So it's almost like the, you know, the Russian dolls with the um, the, little, the one at the center is sort of the individual and then it's expanding out into the layers of um, social and cultural difference and finding ways of understanding and bridging those gaps. If yeah. that makes any sense, it does. It makes a lot. <laughs> I so say, I, I say something about the Myers Briggs. Oh, absolutely, been, uh, a number of psychologists, and this gets at the quantitative, qualitative thing. There are a number of people in the field of psychology, um, generally speaking, quantitatively oriented psychologists, have criticized the Myers Briggs a lot lately, and um, they have some valid. Um, quantitative objections. Uh, most of what they are criticizing is how the test has been improperly used or, or misunderstood um, because there are people who use it to um, think that you can um, sort of snugly fit people into types. Mm -hmm. And that, that generally is not really true, although there are there's some truth to that. Um, but I just want to put a little alert out that that's <laughs> there are criticisms of it, but it's partly due to not understanding the difference between qualitative and quantitative ways of looking at and using certain kinds of insights. Yeah. Well, hopefully anyone that listens to this podcast will have a much better understanding of the two and the reason for both of them, not just mm -hmm. one or the other. That would be good. Yeah. Yes. So every guest that I have on this show, I ask the same question because my tendency is to go off on rabbit trails. So I always thought I'd bring it back to one question. What is one tip that you have for a satisfying and healthy life? Well, I think I can go first. And in a way, I hope this isn't cheating, but um, but in a way, I, I feel like that really is the point that I just made about sort of deeply understanding oneself and then being able to understand whether it's on a small scale within the family, within with one significant other, uh, going out as, as radiating out in concentric circles into wider ways of understanding others. Mm -hmm. uh, it sort of fits back to what I was saying about, and you picked up on that about the classroom experience and being, uh, you know, in discussion and how the sort of the, um, the protocols and all of that situation. So I really do. 
I really think that is a core value of mine and a key um, sort of a key to the quality of my life that I have made that effort so prominent and I keep working on it. I'm by no means perfect in that regard of understanding others and so on, but um, it's very um, fulfilling to me and satisfying and helpful and useful to constantly circle back and uh, try to truly understand and connect with other people from the perspective of truly understanding myself. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you kind of took the words away from me. Um, I was going to say something similar. I think, you know, we were talking about learning how to listen. I would say also learning how to listen to yourself mm. to, to know sort of what it is that you really feel about things, um, where that's, where that's coming from to get a deeper sense of what your own values are, what your own, uh, way of looking at things are. Mm. I love that. I love both those answers and it makes a lot of sense with the, like with Deb's research or Michael, your clinical and classroom experience is to really to understand what's going on outside of yourself. It helps to have an understanding of who you are. And mm. the more that we understand ourselves, the more that we can not only understand others, but maybe even help others. And I know that you too have helped me a lot in my personal growth and I just want to thank you so much. This has been an amazing experience to be able to reconnect with two people who were so prominent in my life when I went by my pseudonym as Canada. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed this. So thank you very much. Well, it's been great. Yeah, it's, been nice it's to wonderful to reconnect with you, Ty, and good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thank you. Is there a place online where people can find whether it's your work or your thoughts on things or anything of that nature? Um, in my case, I write uh, a blog occasionally for um, uh, a website called psychotherapy.net and they can find that there. I have my own website, which there's a link to from psychotherapy.net. And um, I guess I'd leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything? Well, and mine is, I do have a website, but it's, it's just a static. I mean, it's almost like a resume online. Um, you know, it's just, it's, um, what? H T T P S slash slash. And then it's just Deborah Davis Jackson altogether dot org. And it's really, I mean, I don't want to talk it up too much, but it's just sort of there I am. And there's, it's, it's my, it's my professional, it's my academic, um, persona so that's all i've got out there <laughs> well i'm sure someone will like to read through that so once again thank you so much and i hope you have a great day you too, thank you bye-bye bye-bye